one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen here with Murph. Hi, Karen. Hello there, Owen. And we sit here today as champions. Me, you, Steph Curry, US Murph, MC Hammer, Barry Bonds, all the great lifelong Golden State Warriors fans. Yeah. All right, our listeners... Finally, on champions Finally. today after closing the deal against LeBron James and payback after those, yeah pay for all those years of heartbreak. But we finally closed the deal, us Warriors against LeBron James, uh, LeBron plus four mm. as I'm going to call the Cleveland Cavaliers now. You might describe for our lovely listeners my t-shirt of choice today. Uh, you're still wearing your blue Splash Brothers t-shirt, mm-hmm. and uh, on I mean, far be it from me. I mean, it's, uh, maybe it's not even my place. It's just you know the NBA Finals. It's not like wearing a jersey to the All Ireland final. You put it on that morning. <laughs> you wear it when you go to bed that night. When you, you know, you take it off when you go to bed. At worst, you might wear it the, the next day. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. But I mean, that T-shirt's looking a little frayed around the edges. You've had it on now for well over a week, um, and I think probably now, if you know, listen, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there are stink lines coming out from it, right? I'm not saying that that T-shirt could. Get up and walk to the washing machine itself at the stage, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, if you could just take it off now, I'd really appreciate it. Well, amazing stuff from Steph Curry, as always. But the other Splash Brother Murph mm. seemed to forget how to play basketball at some point. <laughs> Poor old Clay Thompson sitting proudly here on, on my left breast, Murph. Mm. Uh, he had, there was a cameo in the fourth quarter of Game 6, uh, which was the, the clincher for the Warriors, where he finally nails a basket, okay, after really struggling to nail any journey. This might have been his second basket or third of the entire match. Uh, he spent so much time celebrating that mm. that he forgot about the bit in basketball where you go back and defend. Yeah. A guy goes up, but they, they either got a basket, the Cavaliers uh, on the break, or they they were fouled for a couple of, a couple of penalty shots. But either way, poor old Clay got roared at by his splash brother, Steph Curry. What are you doing, Clay? <laughs> First of all, you usually hit bats to that... Uh, quite regularly yeah. during the game, it's kind of what you're, what you're here <laughs> yeah. to do. You know, you're on mm. you're on the court doing what you're supposed to be doing. That's not really a cause. You know, 
would the postman celebrate del- uh, delivering letters? That's basically w- what would Ryanair about. celebrate getting you to your destination on time? Well, oh, they yes. often do. They still do that. The yeah. little trumpet thing. You know, they've changed the tune though. What is it now? Oh, I I couldn't reproduce it, but it's definitely a different because we all remember the, the trumpet thing. Yeah, but it's a different tune now. Okay. You know, they really don't think that we've gotten out of the fact that they put down like oh an hour and a half. For like a flight to Manchester when it's like 35 minutes in the air. We have caught on to that. Everybody, we have, again, we have performed the task that you've paid a decent amount of money for. Yeah, within the extraordinarily large <laughs> parameters set down by our timetable. That uh, little cameo I talked about between the two Splash Brothers may have been the last act I saw before finally succumbing to sleep. Tuesday night was a bit of a grueler for me. There was a little bit of Women's World Cup to start. Copa America, the mm. big one, was Argentina against Uruguay that night. Uh, that brought me up to about 2.15am, by which stage the basketball had just tipped off. So I trucked on until about 4.45. That's impressive. What because methods did you, would you usually use to stay awake for those kind of well, nights? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things not to do, mm-hmm. uh, which I actually did on Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. Um, I had three pints. <laughs> no, <it's not. laughs> so bad, bad there. I had yeah. three pints, came home, saw that Uruguay and Argentina was on. As Uruguay Argentina, you know this is this is a real sporting event. This is a, this isn't you know, you know West Indies against Australia. No disrespect. To no disrespect to either of those two fine those fine cricketing nations. Yeah, uh, this is actual sport that I'd actually be interested in. Uh, so I stayed up and watched that. Was a little drowsy after the three points. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, it, it it took a little bit of effort, and then I then obviously there was Game Six in my head as well, and I was like, okay, well. I'm going to keep watching the Cup America and then I'll see how I feel, you know, from there. So at two o'clock, I was switching between channels for two sporting events that I actually was really interested in watching. And at that stage, I was like, yeah, something's wrong here. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong in your life if there's two things on at 2 a.m. in the morning Mm -hmm. that you actually really want to see. So I, I watched about, I'd say I watched maybe up until the last three minutes of the first quarter. And I was like, no, I got to tap out here. I know that my, <laughs> I know that my my uh, coworker and colleague Owen McDevitt is doing all of so, the heavy yeah, lifting. Somebody working on those podcasts today will have yeah. watched this game live. Well, I did make a mistake as well, but not. Until, I, I was quite proud of myself. I what I decided to do there was stick with the Cop America, right? Yeah. Which meant by the time I got to the basketball, it was already well underway. So I had the benefit of skipping through. Those American sports aren't great as live mm. TV events in Ireland. American fans are used to many ad breaks. We're not quite as used to it. Mm. So I got to fast forward through those, and I felt like I was nearly cheating the system. Yeah. I, thought I was keeping alert by pressing fast forward, and you know, and I was catching up on where I needed to be. But I had caught up by half time. So at half time, I just thought, oh, I'll celebrate that. I'll just mm. lie down in this couch here. I've been, I've well, you don't want to do that. So much space. There's so much space to my right hand side here. Why don't I just? Put my head in the pillow. <laughs> what you really want is like a really hard wooden chair yeah, to sit yeah. on. Like kind of a wicker job or something. Something that would, that would be very uncomfortable to fall asleep in. You need that for kind of anything post-midnight. Mm. You should draw it like the, call it like the chiropractor or something. <laughs> you know, like have really, really disgustingly, like a bar stool. You could actually, you know, one of those high, sort yeah. of high bar stools. You could not fall asleep at that. Spe- one of those ones where you can't, there's nothing to rest your feet on underneath. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you're constantly about to cramp up. But I did, a lot of the second half consisted of, you know that, you know when you're, can I say it? You know when you're in mass as, as a kid? Yeah. And you're that, <laughs> yeah. Half waking up. You're in a place where you shouldn't be falling asleep, but it sometimes 
Yeah. Certainly back then, when I was a kid, those masks seemed to go on for an awful long time. I think yeah. they might have shortened them. I think they to, have, yeah. To try to get the kids back on board. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But back then, they were quite long and dry. So that's how I was Safety for a lot of the going second backwards, you know? we, We've enough to talk to U.S. Murph about. I saw enough that I can... Uh, I can um, bluff a conversation with Brian Murphy on the basketball. You stayed up until quarter to five. You can more than bluff a conversation. So no championship this. for LeBron, the self-styled best player in the world, but Rory McIlroy still believes in him. When LeBron talks like that, says he's the best player in the world, it's not confidence, just a fact, McIlroy said. I feel the same way when I look at the world rankings and see my name at the top. So he's pretty confident ahead of teeing it up at 4.30pm today mm. uh, amongst, amongst uh, all the moaning players at the Chambers Bay golf course. Yeah. Uh, and it, this place does seem pretty... Pretty, as uh, Shane Lowry described it in the, his Irish Times column uh, this morning, pretty funky. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, play, golfers do give out about pretty small things. I mean, I've heard golfers give out yards about having a tree in the middle of a fairway. I mean, that, that you could be not rewarded for hitting the ball onto the fairway that you end up behind a tree. That this this level of funkiness is just way too much for a golfer to have. This is to like an uh, 8,000 yard crazy golf course. Yeah. It's got the windmills. Well, the windmill is a unique challenge. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to see how they deal with the windmill hole. I'm, I'm, as yeah, it's known on the Ted Part three there, yeah. <laughs> the, the world famous, I mean, it's, it's, it's a landmark hole. The par five with the alligator snapping up into that, his mouth open and closed on the green. Well, listen, I'm sorry, right? I mean, some people might see that as kind of gimmicky. But uh, I, for one, am really looking forward to see how uh, Brian Snedeker handles, uh, handles the alligator mouth. We'll get into that in a second. We've got US Murph later on. And tip legend Owen Kelly will be in studio to have a look at Tipperary versus Limerick this weekend. But Lawrence Donnegan joins us to talk about this US Open, Lawrence. And it looks like uh, this is ready to become the most unpopular course in US Open history. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a very long list there. You're, you're delving into a few golf courses that, um, that weren't very popular over the years. But it's popular for a different reason. Uh, this year, uh, usually U.S. Open courses are well. They're kind of familiar. You turn on the TV, and everything is a, a verdant green, and it's deep, uh, deep green, and it's uh, it's lush, but it's virtually impossible. The fairways are very narrow. Um, but this year, um, it's it's the opposite. It looks like a like an Open Championship golf course. You could be pitching up in I don't know the uh, Port Rush or or La Hinch. I think I, I wrote a piece the other day saying it's a. Uh, a star-spangled La Hinch. Uh, so it's, it's like a Lynx-style uh, golf course. Uh, and I, I, the word I use here carefully is style. I, it's, not, it's not an actual Lynx golf course, but it's styled upon Lynx. It's, it's built on sand and gravel. And it's fescue grasses. Um, but the fairways are wide open. There's very little, little rough, but the greens are like roller coasters and the players are, are freaking out. But you know what? Um, golf professionals are... Uh, by their very nature, moaners and mumpers. Uh, let's go on with it and let's get the golf started. Yeah, I mean, this is a tradition as old as the US Open itself, isn't it? Players coming out oh. and moaning about how hard the course is. I mean, Ian Poulter has called it a complete farce. Charles Schwarzel has said the, the greens roll so badly that a good putt misses and a bad one goes in. I'm reading this <laughs> thinking, it, I've read this last year, didn't I? Yeah, you, yeah, this is what they're like. Though. Although, in saying that, in fairness to both Poulter and Schwarzel, we kind of... You know, we rip golfers for being bland and never saying something. And then as soon as they say something interesting or honest, we rip them again. I mean, mm. we get we get them at both ends. Uh, yeah, again, it's... Uh, well, if you scroll back a week, uh, the PGA Tour was in Memphis last week. And it was, uh, again, it was one of these golf courses. It was, everything was lush and green. Fairways and narrow. The rough was up. They were just bombing drivers down there and hitting, you know, nine irons in every single hole. It was a repetitive... 
you not to get too golf nerdy, but it was a it was an exam. It, you know, it was a it was a question of execution. Could you execute these shots? Now they're turning up this week, and they're going to have to. You're going to see guys hitting putts from sixty yards, 40, 50 yards. They'll be putting from off the green because it's very hard to tell the difference between the greens and the fairways. And there's going to be guys bumping and running. Uh, the other thing is the setup of the golf course. It's quite an interesting design. Um, it's given there's a guy called Mike Davis who's the head of the USGA, United States Golf Association, who will be setting up the golf course every day. And he has multiple options. A quick, for instance, uh, you can play the first hole as a par five or a par four. There's a hundred yards of difference between those two, and he can play the 18th hole as a par four or a par five. And what he said, he's got on two days. He's going to switch those. So he's going to switch the first hole a couple of days and he's going to switch the 18th hole a couple of days. And, and it's just uncertainty and it's about uh, it's asking, it's an examination of, uh, of creativity and, and thought and golf professionals don't like that kind of thing. They like to, they like to know what they're, what they're facing up to. They, they want it to be the same as last week and the, and the same as the week coming up. Uh, and, and a lot of that is to do that. It's, again, they're just, we're putting these people in a situation where they're really uncertain and they're, you know, it's not simply a process of execution, it's a process of thought, and generally, by and large, golf professionals don't like that. Well, certainly in the US, I mean, we'd like to think, I guess, Lawrence, that golfers from our part of the world would have a little bit of a, a store of ingenuity built up, having grown up in those courses. Although Rory uh, McIlroy at this stage probably counts as an American golfer in that regard. We uh, saw in the, uh, the Irish Open, he, he do, doesn't really like the little uh, bump and runs and thinking his way too much around it. Isn't that amazing? The, the big uh, at Royal County Down recently, the big thing that struck me, really did strike me, was uh, I mean, McElroy was trying to play the kind of knockdown shots and all this, you know, and the nice stuff, and he, he just couldn't pull it off. And w- then you have a guy called uh, a guy like Ricky Fowler, grew up in Southern California, and he goes over to Royal County Down and he can play this kind of game. He can hit the knockdown shots, he can execute them, he's got the kind of creativity to do that. But you're dead right. But at, um, at the Irish Open, Gray McDowell said a really interesting thing and quite a depressing thing. He was saying that he, you know, he was struggling. He actually lost. A, he grew up on this this kind of golf course. He was saying, but he's lost the um, the capacity to pull the shots off on it with a, you know, with the kind of regularity that a professional golfer needs. He's kind of it's a lost art. It's a dying art um, because these guys every week they're set out on these golf courses and it's uh, you know as I say. Narrow fairways, soft greens. Can you hit your driver down the middle? Can you hit your nine iron six feet and and hold your birdie putt? Um, as I say, this time, um, you know, it's not going to be like that. And it is a shame. You are right, but it is a dying art. And it's funny because all these guys, when they're coming through the amateur ranks, you know, they're asked to play. For instance, the British amateur this week has been played at Carnoustie. So all the guys that you're going to be hearing about in 10, 12 years' time are all at Carnoustie this week. And they'll all be at St Andrews a couple of weeks ago for the Lynx Trophy, uh, and they're, they're you know they play a lot of amateur golf and Lynx courses. Mm. But as soon as you get to to the pro game, uh, off you, there's no more Lynx courses, and that's why they're not used to this kind of stuff. Rory McIlroy, uh, just to stick with him for the time being, he has he's gone all LeBron James. We've been talking all week about LeBron uh, saying he's the best player in the world, and Rory says, "Well, when LeBron talks like that, it's not confidence; it's just a fact." I feel the same way when I look at the world rankings and see my name at the top. If you look back at the last five years, I've won more majors than anyone else over that period. Do I feel like the best player in the world? Yes, and I want to go out every week and try to back that up. I, I, th- I think I like this kind of talk. Oh, absolutely! You know, again, it, it's decent copy. Uh, you know. I mean, I think we've all had enough of false modesty and humility through the years. And I mean, he is, he's absolutely honest, and I don't think we should rip him for that. You, you know, 
again, if you ask anybody who follows a professional game closely, Rory's best against everybody else's best. Well, there's only one winner. The question is, um, with Rory, unlike when you, if you take Tiger back in the day, you know, Tiger would go, Tiger won, people forget this, Tiger won seven majors out of 11 at one stretch. You know, that kind of consistency is astonishing. And, the, and I don't think Rory will ever attain that level. But, you know, the question with him is, can he produce it on a more regular basis? And can he produce it uh, on golf courses that are perhaps not, as the Yanks would say, in, in his wheelhouse? And this golf course isn't in his wheelhouse, so it'll be interesting to see how he copes with it. Tiger is going to be interesting as always. Jason Day was had something, a few interesting things to say about it. Jason Day was asked about practicing with Tiger the other day, and he talked quite in depth, as players used to be afraid to do years ago. You just didn't say anything about Tiger besides giving him the, the compliments and the bit of lip, lip service. But one thing he said, I think he was trying to be nice, Jason Day, and, and complimentary. He says, I'll tell you what, if you could get it on the fairway, he'd probably be back to where he was. Uh, which is fairly indicative, maybe of <laughs> that. That was, I think, that was supposed to be a nice, um, you know, a positive comment as opposed to a veiled dig. But it doesn't sound great for Tiger. Well, uh, no, it doesn't. Although the one thing about this golf course uh, is the fairways are. I mean, even I could hit these fairways on. Um, they're 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 very very wide. Uh, the question is, though, again, not to get too golf nerdy, but it's not a question of hitting the fairways. It's where on the fairway you're going to hit. Mm. You, you're going to have to play the angles. You're going to have to pick the right the right side of the fairway. But uh, as regards fairways, I mean, Tiger would have to he would you know he'd have to be epically bad to miss most of these fairways, as he has been doing on regular in regular PGA Tour events. Um, he's hitting his irons pretty well, but uh, you know, can he control the ball? You know, can he control his tee shots? That's a big thing. The, the one good thing as well, and this will be good for Rory. Um, the greens, um, I, I, who was mentioned earlier on about the oh yeah, it was Swartzel was talking about the greens. That really reduces the importance, of, not to a, a huge extent, but it reduces the importance of putting. So if Rory, the knock on Rory is that well, he, he doesn't win if he doesn't putt well. You know, he's a great ball striker, but he, you know, he needs to putt well. But these greens you know, would slightly negate the um, the need to putt absolutely brilliantly and that will help Tiger as well so, so the golf course in, in a way will, will, will suit Tiger the fairways are very wide and the greens uh, you know the greens are a bit of a bit of a leveler and uh, you know given the way that Tiger's been playing for the last I don't know I think he's 195th in the world now given the way he's been playing for the last 18 months uh, he's not going to win and he, he, but he's I mean I'll give him more of a chance anyway to to put in a decent performance. I'd usually ask you to predict a winner at this point, but maybe the best way to phrase it is who will be the last man standing on Sunday night? Uh, well, I, I, you know, I was looking this morning, on uh, the, the forecast is pretty good. There's not a lot, a great deal of wind, although the, there's a quite an interesting piece about the, uh, there's little microclimates within the golf course. The holes nearer the Puget Sound are windier and colder. Um, but yeah, so, but overall, the, the, the wind isn't going to be too bad. Um, yeah, is the last man standing? I would imagine the US Open or the USGA don't like to see the winning score uh, under par. They were stung last year by Martin Keimer. I think he was nine or I can't remember what he was, eight or nine under par to win it. I would imagine that they will uh, do everything they can to keep the score over par. But the thing about that, though, if it's six or seven or eight under par, then uh, six or seven or eight over par for the winner, then it's just a kind of ludicrous uh, golf tournament and terrible to watch. Um, but as regards who will be the last man standing, I, I think it's absolutely... I, it's crystal clear to me. I, I can't believe anybody else or very few people are tipping him. I, I think Ricky Fowler's going to win this. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. Listen, Lawrence, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. No bother. Yeah, I don't know. Is, is six or seven over really that conducive to a terrible golf tournament? Uh, isn't 
the whole idea of par. Like, come on, who was it? Old Tom Morris? I don't know. Whoever decided par was the correct score to get. Old Tom Morris. Maybe it's young Tom Morris. I don't know. One of the two. Uh, but it's an arbitrary con- concept in the first place. So why not just go six, seven over? Watch all these great players brought to their knees by this crazy golf course. This it's, crazy, crazy golf course. It's not. It's not though. You know. What? It's it's not particularly what? enjoyable. Uh, you don't because think so? if you wanted to see people making loads of bogeys, you could just play golf yourself. <laughs> you know, like that's that's that would be my that would be my concern. If you want to see people hit shots that in that you know. It's exciting to see people do sport well. It's not you see that see... all the time. There's so much golf. It goes on all year. They never go home, those boys. Yeah. They're constantly earning millions somewhere around the tournament, hitting 15 under par. Yeah. So why not give them one tournament per year where it'd be the equivalent of taking away one of Leo Messi's legs, legs and asking him to, still, uh, to, to compete. But ultimately, he would probably still rise to the top even if he was playing against a whole bunch of lads who'd had their legs. <laughs> Yeah, see, I don't really think that that analogy has helped you a whole lot there, Rod. I don't know. That, that no. may be a bit more. Maybe even just tying the arms. If Leo Messi was on field, right, with... Yeah. It was Argentina against Uruguay, as it was, a couple of nights ago, and everybody had their arms tied behind their back. Yeah. I think Leo Messi would still probably be the best player. Well, I think he'd be a really bad player. Marouane Fellaini. <laughs> his arms tied behind his back. Like, the worst. Yeah. He would just... He would, he would, his, all of his limitations would be really easy to spot if Marouane Fellaini couldn't... Sort of, you know, <laughs> get the old elbows. Get, get the old elbows to work, and uh, get that elevation that he needs. Um, no, I'd, I'd, I'd listen. Two or three under, fine. Six or seven over, no. I'm sorry. Coming up in, I should mention that Ken Early is away on holidays, so myself and Murph will truck on with the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, Pace, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you shawnee man? So, Radamel Falcao has a new club, and we're going to discuss just how... That came about. Uh, we're going to talk Copa America with uh, Tim Vickery, Neymar uh, playing brilliantly, Arturo Vidal playing brilliantly, but then also um, getting into quite a bit of bother behind his uh, red Ferrari. Mm. And uh, it's not just Jurassic World breaking box office records on uh, United mm-hmm. Passions uh, is now belongs to history. United Passions, uh, the FIFA uh, yes. movie about FIFA. Um, is its place in the box office record books has been assured. Uh, more on that in the football okay. show. Big game of the weekend, the Hurling Championship, is at the Gaelic Grounds. Limerick play tip. Well, unless it turns out to be a big shock in the Kilkenny-Wexford match. Owen Kelly has popped into studio. Owen, you're keeping well? Good now, Les. Yeah, very good. As soon as Limerick beat Clare, uh, there was all this... You know, Limerick will fancy themselves against Tip. They've no fear against Tip. All these kind of things. I, I'm wondering, what is it about Tip that you think, as a Tipperary man, Limerick... Like Limerick, why do Limerick always fancy themselves against Tipperary? I think why Limerick fancy themselves is because Limerick like like to get down rough and tumble, and uh, this current Tipperary team, I think, likes open space, a lot of ball players, a lot of movement in their forward line. So you've seen the Wicklow Kenny uh, to be successful against Tip. It seems if you set up at the back, um, even one or two midfielders fall back. That once there's no space there, Tip find it hard to get scores in tight spaces. 
And I think that's why Limerick have adopted the same approach that the Kilkenny's have adopted. We're and we even at, yeah. kind of seen that in the league semi-final. Waterford kind of fell back and, and Tip found it hard to get space. We were looking at some of the stats from your own career. Your first five game, games against Limerick, they, they might have fancied themselves, but you won all those games. So uh, you sent the pack. And since 2007, though, eight games, there were those, that, that, there was that three-game epic. So there were a couple of draws, three Limerick wins and two Tipperary wins. And maybe most telling in the last couple of seasons, Limerick. I, I, I don't know if you're a bigger believer in tradition or in what's gone on in the, in the last couple of years in Limerick won the last couple well um, I would be to be honest with you and if, if Limerick happened to be tip, tip on Sunday it's going to be the first time since 48 that they've they've done three in a row in championship ga- games in consecutive years over over tip like someone was telling me 46, 47, 48 so like it's massive you know what I mean and like um, I know the Tipperary players well I know if I was involved I'd, I'd be trying out that stat to the boys like look would you? you know, I would definitely that, yeah. I, I would just yeah, because like you know someone's going to say it somewhere and uh, you'd just be saying to them look let's, we don't want this to happen you know because Limerick have the upper hand on tip the last two seasons and like Limerick are at the stage a bit like Tip um, they want to push on and win silverware now they have the last, they won a monster title two years ago okay but what I'm trying to say here is they need to win big games they need to beat the likes of down the road at Kilkenny in a big game they had a big opportunity last year Limerick and they let it slip but Tip now need to win a big game against Limerick you know to get to really kickstart their season so it's massive, and I've even, I even see Eamon O'Shea during the week. Usually, Eamon maybe, you know, he talks it down and he says, "Look, our our, our squad, uh, you know, I've great belief in this squad." But during the week, he mentioned we're going down to Limerick to win. So that tells you there's a change in the mindset straight off. And even the Tip team was in Carton House last weekend, so I think this game for Tip <clears throat> is the be all and end all of their season. Yeah, I mean, uh, you've referenced it already there that that Limerick kind of have a rough and tumble style that they're known for a robust style of hurling. I mean, is that is that noticeably different, do you think, from, from other teams? I mean, the, the the fact that they've had a tradition doesn't ne- necessarily mean that they have the players uh, now to play that style. As it turns out, I think they do. Um, but, I mean, is it, it are Limerick a noticeably more physical team to play against? Definitely, than, than definitely are. Like, <clears throat> you come off the pitch after playing maybe the Corks and the Waters, and, like, you're not that sore. There's not much physical challenges. There's a lot of hurling done okay. But with Limerick, with Juchel Kenny's... You know, you're sore after the games. You feel it. You feel every every tackle. And like Limerick probably went away from their style a couple of seasons ago with Don O'Grady, and I don't think it was, they were too happy below it. But they're back now. To they, they have hurlers. I'm not saying they don't have hurlers. They have plenty of ball players. They can score. Um, they have some serious attacking forwards. They've pace. They have the nice blend. But that bit of steel. That the Limerick supporters like to see that's back in this team. Yeah, they've kind of melded it, haven't they? They they, they took what they could from Donal O'Grady's style of hurling, and they've also attached that to more traditional sort of cornerstones of, of, of course they have. Yeah. yeah, like and I suppose they got a big discipline lesson from like Sir Donal O'Grady as well. What it takes to win all Ireland, they really looked up to him, and you know, so everything or every manager that has been involved in the last couple of seasons has added to their belief system as well and you know to have players even at the back Tom Condon and Shane Sickey that can nullify opposing teams major major threats of their forward line so you know, they have options they have plenty of options and like I know from, I, I know from being down in, in the Gaelic grounds or even in Turles when Limerick come with a charge and even if you're five or ten points up they come with a charge the roof lifts uh, off, the, off the stand and the crowd gets behind them and it's you're like you're just like oh I just want something to happen here to stop this rot yeah. and they just keep chipping away to score. So if the crowd gets behind them on Sunday, if they do get their nose in front, it'll, it'll be a tough one for Tip. Yeah, um, Keen Lynch was named as hurler of the month last for for May. Uh, minor last year. I mean, it's it's a pretty meteoric rise to fame for a guy like that who was their minor captain last year. 
you've been there. You've you played actually as a minor and as a senior. I mean, what are the unique challenges that 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 poses? You know, being a young guy all of a sudden coming from nowhere to to nearly being a guy that people are looking to to create something on Sunday. Yeah, would you believe? I think the first couple of seasons, the first season especially, is a dream as a young player because the guy you're marking doesn't know are you fast or how fast are you do you turn left do you turn right now I know all these teams are analysed and all that maybe it's harder now but after a season or two it becomes tougher because they know you, you favour your right side they know you're good in the air they get to know you managers get to know you so I think um, Keane Lynch will have a great first season he's ki- he's kicked it off already and what I like about him is he's fresh even his interviews afterwards he's he's fresh he's honest he's open I think he plays yeah. like that that'll be beaten out of him I'm sure Owen he'll oh. stop being so honest and open in post-match <laughs> I'd say it's a very Conor Back will be trying to do that now next, next Sunday <laughs> sure, but yeah. you know, like no, he, he does he does he gives off this air of it's fun, and it's, that's not always the air you get from, from inter-county players, that this is actually quite enjoyable, what you're out there doing. Of course, yeah. and what I liked about him last Sunday like, is he just attacked the ball. He just went at it 100 miles an hour. If he missed it, he didn't care. He was attacking the next one 100 miles an hour. And when you're like that, you're on your game, and that's what I've uh, found starting, uh, starting out. You know, you just, you're carefree, and you don't give a damn, really, and, and it's great to see him. There, there is, I would have thought, though, a certain pressure, uh, even when you're, say, 17, 18 years of age, in that people are looking at you and going okay let, let's see what you have you're doing your leaving cert or whatever it might be and you're in here in a yeah, senior I mean, it, might, is there an, it happens so seldom you know that like that a minor would be playing senior course, in the same yeah. year you know that on the one hand sure he's a minor but then on the other hand it's like well this guy's obviously something really out of the ordinary good so you know let's see it like if you're there for a reason yeah, I think you can hear Marco Fellas in his first year minor if he's going to make it or not. Like he was, he was a standout minor, you know, and he was like he was contributing uh, four and five points throughout his minor days in the, in the championship games. But then when you judge him in the league, he was getting two and three points every day. He he went out in the league, so you know he he really fitted into it straight away. Like so, um, you know, he's he's a super player. Like and uh, he's, he's he's going to be dangerous against Tip on Sunday. Something you mentioned there about Eamon O'Shea. I just want to go back to that at the vibes that he's putting out this week it was funny because when we talked about Dublin Galway after their replay we were chatting about Anthony Cunningham doing something similar and being very bullish in his interviews and really putting something out there is that something that as a player you actually look for from your manager that you wanted to see them project something during the week I, I think you would yeah yeah, definitely you know I, I think the manager he's the boss he's number one everyone looks up to him you know what I mean he gives off the uh, we'll say the vibes that you're going to carry through the week and carry into the game and you know Tip are very quiet uh, there's not much in the media about them so I, I like the the attitude they're adopting to it like I suppose if we're being honest about it and Eamon would have been honest himself with us like two years ago we were probably very complacent going down playing Limerick in the Gaelic grounds and I think we got our we got our comeuppance that day really you know you know, and even we after half time Bubbles Dwyer scored a goal and three points after coming on at half time and you know it looked like we were going to push on, but we didn't. Limerick came with a couple of scores and got that surge I mentioned earlier and beat us by three points, uh, fair and square, and actually bullied us out of the game. And, you know, I think Eamon would have said, you know, afterwards that you know, we probably didn't, we took him lightly maybe, you know. Can you sense that at all during the week? Do you, do you, when you have a bad day like that, can you look back and pinpoint training sessions during the week or anything like that that you, you seemed would. a little bit more, more flat yeah, than they should have you been? would. You'd yeah. see it in the warm-up. Uh, you'd actually... But there's you know, nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do. It's too late. Right. It's too late. You know, even in lads' demeanour, maybe, you know, some lads might even for that weekend have brought the wrong helmet. You know, it's little small things, just little, little small things. You know, might have only brought two hurlies and then they're put from the extended panel outside the 26 we'll say someone gets injured or someone is sick like Jason Ward was sick that day so then their parachute was into the 26 but they're not prepared mm-hmm. you know what I mean so just little small things um, and then it I think it, it, that's the way the team performed then so 
like a week or ten days, you have to be right for championship games. And the vibes I'm getting from from the tip set up is that I think they are right this time around. Sorry, Kenny Wexford, I should say. The, one of the storylines out of this one, Jack Guiney is off the panel. Liam Dunn said, I made, no, I made no rules for anybody, he says, but we set standards and the players set standards as you go along and players buy into it. I'd love to have Jack Guiney. The players would love to have Jack Guiney. The management would love to have Jack Guiney. But I'm not so sure that Jack wants us as much as we want him. This is in relation to apparently him going out for a few drinks after the game against Westmead. Uh, it's, it's always hard to know with these ones because you don't know precisely uh, the extent of the issues that management are having with a player. On the face of it, I always think it seems a little harsh to drop a guy for going for a, f- a few post-match drinks. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, you don't know the full story. But when I heard it, I was disappointed. I said, oh no, here we go again. Like, you know, they're, they're really building up for this massive game against Kilkenny. You wanted everything to be low-key in Wexford and just come with an ambush. But the next thing, it's out in the open. You know, you know everything that's going on. And you know, I've, I've seen even maybe with... Uh, was a Kilkenny were an outstanding team the last 10 years deserved every other and they won but a lot of other teams helped them along the way <laughs> Cork with their strike Tipperary weren't organised Limerick were very disorganised Waterford had their troubles Gal- you know Galway had their troubles with management and I thought Liam Dunn um, was right he had a good management team in place he was really building up the team and the next thing this hullabaloo with Jack Guiney like he if I was Liam I probably would have handled it a bit different I'd say well, how would you I wouldn't have had it out in the open um, he probably wouldn't play for me on the day if he had to maybe mess around he, obviously if he's after messing around but I would have um, and I would have probably reverse psychology that if, if you were going to bring him on as a sub that he has to produce something for you you know I'd be kind of yeah. making him the focal point of the group that Jack you've let us down you know yeah. um, is, is there I, you know when you're presented with a situation like that where okay people it, it's come back to you that a guy has been drinking is there anything you can do, though, in a situation like that? I mean, if say if you dealt with it the way that you you suggested there, I think certainly from a hurling point of view, that's the best way to do it. But is there an idea then that, OK, there are guys on the panel who are looking at this saying, right, OK, well, if he can swing the lead, then... You yeah, know, like it, it, it's just there, the timing of this situation. Exactly, it seems it's ten days. It's yeah. a week. It's four or five days before they play Kilkenny yeah. when they want an ambush. Really, going down to Nolan Park. You know, if it was a month, you might approach it different. You might take the Liam Dunn route here, but when it's so close, I'd be I'd, I'd be trying to do reverse psychology with him. Yeah, trying da- to say you've yeah. let the side down. Yeah, you've let everything down. You're not going to be starting for me. But when you come on, I want you to deliver a yeah. performance, yeah. and then I'll talk to you afterwards. Yeah, the, the the damage, say to sort of in squad morale, is less than yeah. the damage of having a thing like this like, out in the open for a I week. I have no yeah. doubt about it. Jack Guiney has with a squad like that. You have four or five major friends like that. You're you're texting in your WhatsApp that you're majorly close with, and then you're friendly with the rest of the group. You know, so those four or five are gutted probably that he's not around. Around, yeah. And number and the main thing here is he's a top class player. He's six foot one or two. He's big and physical. Ideal, ideally, what you want going down to play yeah. to Kenny and Nolan Park, and uh, and he's a scorer. He's hit something like two twenty six in the league and in the five league games. So he has, you know, he's a good player. So I'm just disappointed because I was hoping Wexford and look, they, they still will hopefully deliver performance. But you know, they need everything going right. You need everything going right when you're taking on the Kilkenny's of this world. Well, give us predictions in the two games then. Huh? I fancy Kilkenny will beat Wexford five or six points. Because they'll know that Wexford are, are, are coming, and I fancy. I wouldn't be surprised if we we're back in Turles for a replay, but I' going to call it that. People going to get over the line here by a pint show. I just think they're more focused this time around. Yeah, and it sounds like it's going to be hell for leather as well, so it should be fun. <laughs> yeah, I think. Look, you're going to have a great if, weekend, especially the Munster Championship has been exciting so far. Yeah. So I think you're going to have a, a another another serious weekend of hurling. Listen, enjoy it all, and great to have you in the studio, Hansamil. Cheers, lads. 
Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be asked answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. No, I think Hawk have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups. Massive boo-boo. Tonight, 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 tonight. That was a really interesting insight into the way your body stands up to different to matches against different teams. I just always assumed you come off an inter-county hurling match and you're fairly battered and bruised. It's It looks tough. It looks tough mm. out there. Owen says the likes of Cork, Waterford, some of these other teams, they're more stylish. You don't necessarily feel too beaten up. I look at those teams. It all looks much of a muchness when you're, uh, when you're kind of watching from a distance. But I do, I, 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 can, I can understand what he's saying, that there are certain teams, Kilkenny being one of them and Limerick being another, that uh, just have a different, yeah. a, di- a different physical edge. They play to a different set Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, there's probably, there are different types of battered. You can probably be extremely tired running around playing against all these hurling teams because mm-hmm. they're, you know, hurling a lot. Whereas uh, there are teams who will just rather stand there and just fight with you. Mm. Um, but, I mean, yeah, the, the way it's kind of been that Owen has teed it up for us uh, beautifully there is that uh, Tipperary probably feel that they kind of have to win the fight first before they win the game. Um, and that means it should be, should be pretty, pretty fun. Uh, it should be. I think we're about to hear from a very, very, very happy US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Straight three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Daddy's out on his feet. Frank Cappuccino's going to let him keep going. Got it! Touchdown! Touchdown, Touchdown. Ryan Murphy, I'm sitting here. I'm wearing my Splash Brothers t-shirt with pride today. We're the champions. Boys, lads, lifelong friends, long lost cousins, <laughs> you guys are part of the Warrior Party. You are champions today, boys. You guys are part of the mosaic, part of the tapestry. And speaking of mosaics and tapestries, I think we're going to have to six Simon and Mark, or whoever makes that wonderful intro, and slice in a little sound from the mm. Golden State Warriors beating the Cleveland Cavaliers to win the NBA championship, baby. You got my uh, my Giants in there, some 49ers, but the 49ers under Harbaugh didn't get where the Warriors under Steve Kerr got just Tuesday night in Cleveland. Wow, wow, wow. What a season. One of the great seasons in NBA history, and I, I'm not – exaggerating and you guys were, were here for part of it from the curry 62 footer in memphis to owens nosebleed seats uh at uh after bumgarner took kershaw deep so boys congratulations to you too well what have the celebrations been like you you mentioned the 49ers you've had so much joy with the giants over the last few years how does this one compare this is the first time you've tasted basketball success it's 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 uh, it, uh, orgasmic is maybe too strong of a word. It's you know what it is. It's super. It's a super happy feeling of a great satis a great um, 
a great triumph for a bunch of guys who are really easy to like. And, and it's speaking strictly from a Northern California perspective, it's the only team that unites the Bay Area. You know, we're divided, you know, the same way in English soccer, you know, Manchester United and Manchester City divide loyalties, uh, Liverpool and uh, who's the other Liverpool Everton. soccer team? Everton. Everton, thank you. Liverpool and Everton divide them up. And then, of course, London has a bunch of different teams, you know, whether it's Chelsea or Arsenal or whatever. But but this is our, our team that unites us because baseball is divided and football is divided. Like this morning on our show, one of our coworkers, Joe Hughes, uh, who's a, is a strident A's fan and, and frequently is at odds with us, who are Giants fans. And there's always, despite our friendships, a simmering tension underneath. Came bursting into our studios this morning for high tens all around, double slapped high fives and hugs. I said, "Look at us, the Bay United." It's like uh, Jimmy Carter bringing the Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin together at Camp David <laughs> and pressing those hands together, baby. So the West Bay, the East Bay, the North Bay, the South Bay, all united. And uh, so all those thoughts are percolating and running through my head here. Yeah, you tweeted last night that the San Francisco Giants' three titles were all shockers, stunning displays of underdog ball. The Warriors were the best all along, period. And I think it does actually make a difference when, uh, you know, they're both really, really nice ways to win. They come from nowhere. And also the, listen, we're the best, just go out and do the job. And that's what the Warriors did. And you're in a pretty unique situation now in that in the last six months, you or in the last uh, eight or nine months, you've seen your baseball team and your basketball team win in two completely separate, uh, but both equally satisfying ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all sports fans can relate, right? Anytime your team, your county and hurling or football goes all the way, whether they're the heavy favorites or whether they're the underdogs, they're both sweet in different ways. It is such a unique thing for us to have it happen twice in eight months because this was October 29th. You know what? Somebody actually had an incredible stat, that the Warriors opened their season on October 29th, I believe was the date, on the very night that Madison Bumgarner performed his Sportsman of the Year heroics in Kansas City. That happened the same night. Somebody said they even traced the time that the Warriors tipped off against the Kings around 7.30 Pacific time that night, and Bumgarner had taken the mound in Kansas City around 7.20 Pacific that night. So these things, uh, you know, your Venn diagrams, your circles colliding of the Giants climaxing this unlikely championship right as the Warriors launched what is, as I referenced earlier, one of the great seasons. And I'm not kidding, guys. There's 67 regular season wins plus their 16 postseason wins gives them 83 total wins in the season. Now, it's a little bit unfair because there hasn't been four rounds of best-of-seven playoffs all through the history of the NBA, so this eliminates a lot of the previous teams. But since that format has been instituted, only two teams have won more games between the regular season and playoffs than the 2015 Warriors, and it's the legendary, and I mean legendary, Michael Jordan Bulls of 96 and 97. I mean, those are some of the greatest teams of all time, the Jordan Bulls. And here's the catch. You know who was a team, a player on both of those Jordan teams, and a coach on the Warrior team? I've got it, Brian. Guy, Steve Kerr. Steve yep, Kerr, you yeah, your hero, your coaching hero. In fact, you, you might want to get a, a, co- a T-shirt of him. I should send you guys a Steve Kerr T-shirt. <laughs> we'll accept it. Uh, to wear. But he, what a story he is, a rookie coach who was all but sealed and signed and delivered to go be with his, his mentor, Phil Jackson, and the New York Knicks who are one of the worst franchises in all the NBA, and then him having this just very, very, very critical change of heart as it was finalizing, saying, you know what, that Warrior job, and it got up, the Warriors fired Mark Jackson, a very successful coach, but a guy who divided 
some of the front office because he was a bit of an abrasive personality. He had a problem with Jerry West, who was the consultant to the front office. Jerry West, one of the greatest winners in the history of American sports. Mark Jackson felt threatened by Jerry West. So Joe Lacob, the owner of the Warriors, made the move to fire a very successful coach who had taken the Warriors to the playoffs two straight years, rolled the dice on getting somebody better and stealing Steve Kerr away from Phil Jackson and the Knicks. So many different pieces that go into this whole deal, whether it's Steph Curry, whether it's the finals MVP, Andre Iguodala, whether it's the owner, Laker, buying the team five years ago and making huge promises that people thought were crazy, or whether it's Kerr becoming this this legendary coach already now, uh, becoming only the second coach ever to take the Golden State Warriors to a championship. They've been here since 1962. So, so many great storylines, guys. His big tactical switch was to bring... Uh, Iguodola, you mentioned there, Andre Iguodola, the MVP of this final series, into the team. This is a guy who, uh, a really top quality player, but who was prepared to start on the bench throughout the regular season. I believe he's the first player to win the MVP in the finals without actually starting any games during the season. I read that the reason that he did this was that he decided he needed to go small against LeBron. I think basketball could be the only sport, Brian, where you bring in a six foot six, two hundred and fifteen pounder in order to go small against somebody. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, you, when you're talking about the big who are not small, we're talking about real bigs, and that was Cleveland's Russian Muscovite named Timofey Mozgov, seven foot one, Lord knows how many pounds, and the Warriors answering with their seven foot Australian Andrew Bogut, Lord knows how many pounds. So when we say big, we mean big. That means six five six six is going small. And yes, that was it. The tactical decision that changed the entire series because and listen, there's so much to talk about from the LeBron angle, too, and the Cleveland angle, and their ongoing suffering. We've talked about it through the years, how Cleveland is the most cursed city in all major U.S. sports. The, any city that has all three sports, baseball, basketball, and football, Cleveland has the longest drought of any. And here was LeBron's return. We've talked about it so many times, what it meant to the city, what it meant to him, lifting the economy up, saving uh, starving children, et cetera, et cetera. And for Cleveland to make it this far and then have these tragic injuries to Kyrie Irving, who's a spectacular player, by the way, and in game one showed that he would have been a serious handful if the Warriors had to play him, but he fractures his kneecap in game one. They already had lost Kevin Love, their uh, third option, the all-star Kevin Love, to a separated shoulder against the Celtics. So what was left was LeBron. LeBron was basically a one-man show out there, and Mozgov, too. And the Warriors figured out that if they took Bogut off the floor, and made the Cavaliers take Mozgov off the floor, then the Warriors could use all these versatile players, and that's the key word, these versatile players who can who can take it to the basket, who can shoot the three, who can shoot the mid-range jumper, who can pass, and who can defend. And that's the last one, but maybe the most important. All of these guys can play defense. You know, Don Nelson, to get it kind of inside basketball history, Don Nelson was a revolutionary coach in the NBA in many ways for running high-flying offenses up and down the court. He was a Golden State Warriors coach for many years, but his team's never defended, and that was the knock. Well, Steve Kerr has taken it to the next level by finding this mix of players given to him by the excellent general manager, Bob Myers, of guys like Andre Iguodala and Draymond Green particularly, and to a lesser extent, Harrison Barnes, and then Clay Thompson, and even Steph Curry, even though he's not 6'6". But these guys are like all six foot six. And they all can run the floor, and they all can defend guys, no matter who they're up against. And it's this new style of these these mid-range guys who can run like deer and defend and switch on defense. And that was the tactical decision. Take the big chess piece off the board. 
Andrew Bogut, who was struggling with Mozgov, take him off the floor, just like removing a chess piece, make them bench Mozgov, or if they have Mozgov in, make Mozgov run the floor. And as a result, the Warriors' strength, their versatility, their depth, their speed, their offense, their defense, shined. And after being down two games to one, just LeBron alone couldn't handle that. There were too many Warriors against LeBron, too many different guys who could hurt Cleveland offensively, and Cleveland only had LeBron. So by going to that tactic, by going to that move, it was a you know you call it nothing short of genius in a moment like this. Down two one, they bench Bogut, they bring in Iguodala to win the next three games. This guy Iguodala wins the NBA Finals MVP award, and we got like I said a parade on Friday. Uh, yeah, well Iguodala did did manage to win the NBA MVP. Um, but how the hell did uh, LeBron not win this award? Because I, as you're telling us here, I mean, it was basically five, you know, Warriors against one Cleveland Cavalier with a rotating cast of, uh, you know, no marks. Uh, and we got all the way to a game six purely on the back of LeBron. I mean, I know that you're a journalist, uh, Brian, first and foremost, you know, Golden State Warriors second. Uh, so explain to me how LeBron didn't actually win MVP because he probably deserved it. Didn't he? Great question. Great barstool argument that you could just you could just argue until they close the bar and throw you out. What is an MVP? And we've gone through this, right? And, and various times through the years, uh, we've gone through it just recently with the regular season MVP, Steph Curry versus James Harden. Another similar argument where James Harden of the Houston Rockets was basically a one-man show because Dwight Howard was injured for much of the year, and he had to kind of lift his team to the playoffs, but Steph Curry was the best player on the best team. So you have that argument of which is, you know, it's such a, no, there is no definition, there's no scientific definition that says, you know, does your player complete box A, box B, box C, and if so, he's the MVP. It is simply you are to vote which player is deemed most valuable in the series. And it comes, it's basically like, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. You look at a menu, you want the steak, I want the fish, you know? So do you value LeBron's single-handed performance that comes up short or do you value the best, the, the most impactful player on the winning team? And so they have 11 guys who vote. It's only 11, kind of a small sample size. And it's 11 very veteran basketball uh, observers, writers, or broadcasters, one of them being the ABC broadcaster Jeff Van Gundy, one of them being one of the Cavaliers beat writers, one of them being one of the Warriors beat writers, and then several of them being national columnists like uh, Zach Lowe of Grantland.com or Mark Stein of ESPN or Mark Spears of Yahoo Sports. And the vote came down 7-4 to four for Andre Iguodala. And you could. I'm not here to tell you that he ironclad 3,000% deserved it over LeBron. I understand why some people would vote for LeBron. My ultimate argument, though, as to why I wouldn't have voted for LeBron was what happened in Game 6. And for LeBron, he was in a difficult situation. He had to keep performing at that level to get his team. And in his Game 6, quite frankly, was, I don't want to use the word underwhelming, it was just sort of ordinary. And Andre Iguodala was not ordinary in Game 6. Andre Iguodala was extraordinary in Game 6. So while I went into that Game 5, even on the air saying, guys, I, I could seriously see LeBron being the MVP of this thing, especially if it went seven games, win or lose. What, his, his performance on Game 6 was just lacking. And now the question is, why was it lacking? Was it because he is out of gas after spilling all his guts for five games? Quite likely. Was it because ultimately when he's playing with that many players who aren't all-stars, it's just not going to hold up? Yeah, quite likely. 
or was it just that, you know, he maybe lost his will a little bit? Maybe, maybe he looked defeated to me. So that game six to me took away the MVP for LeBron, but not in a landslide, not in an insulting kind of way, just that the winning team had a guy who changed the series and it was Andre Iguodala. Well, my energy was ebbing away with LeBron. All those stages you talk through, mm-hmm. when you stay up till 5am to watch a sporting event, <laughs> I, was, I was feeling LeBron's pain, oh, Brian. So proud of you. Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah. you. Well, listen, Brian, we haven't even talked about Steph Curry, but I think we've talked about him enough probably over the last, uh, over the last couple of months. He's the best player of the season, probably uh, all concerned. He's the overall MVP. Enjoy the parade and uh, congratulations to, to all of us Warriors fans. To, to, to me and you, on Warrior also Nation. Bride. Let's not forget Brian I here. Say, I say to you guys, congratulations. And you know what? You've already proven that you can wing it over to the Bay Area. Air Lingus, Oakland, parade, Friday. <laughs> See you there. See you there, Brian. <laughs> You're there in spirit, boys. I'll have those big cardboard cutouts of your faces. I'll hold them up, all right? Beautiful. Take care. Take care, guys. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent. A confined giant Central Stadium in Paris. Lex Luger, we got a date with Destiny right now. Yeah. All right, you, you know I love U.S. Murphy at this stage. This, with all due respect to the man, mm-hmm. what, what, what was he talking about there? What was he talking about at the end there, LeBron? Either the MVP is the most impactful player on the winning team or the best player mm. I mean surely it's got to be the latter LeBron well, James LeBron James was m- miles better and people can say okay game 6 he didn't play very well in right but if you look at game 6 is essentially one sixth of the overall I mean the game is the series that's the way these things are structured yeah. Leo Messi I always felt got quite a easy ride when he completely underperformed during the World Cup saved himself in the early stages with a couple of nice moments but by and large was terrible by his standards was a shadow of the player he was and yet people were willing to forgive him whereas LeBron kind of gets a little bit now in fairness I think Messi got player of the tournament and people thought that was a bit of a joke so it's not as though everyone said he was the best player but I just kind of feel with LeBron he's getting hammered here not hammered but he's getting uh, overlooked unfairly yeah well See, I think you know there there is a thing with the MVP as well that you kind of start investigating or you you know you start going deep into the individual meanings of the three words involved in the title. <laughs> you know, say like man of the match. I mean, you know, are we to start saying that you know the well the man of the match is you know the the the, the guy who who uh, showed the most manly qualities over the what we're talking about here is the best. Effing player, and yeah, that's it's gotta it. Be. I mean, like, you know, you can't really go into go in deep into sort of semantics and things. Like all of these awards, they're all the exact same. It's like, who do you think was the best? Even if you do go into semantics, LeBron was the most valuable. Yeah. He was the most valuable to Take either him team out yeah. and replace him with a separate player. And the the most valuable player is the guy. The the biggest difference between that and the performance of an average NBA player. So it would have to be LeBron. He's but, not still listening, is he, Brian? Well. We're just if we are, we're talking about a different. Yeah, Brian no, Murphy. different. It's my brother Brian, <laughs> who has strong held views on the MVP. Also, sure. <clears throat> very strongly held views. He was also up a quarter to five last uh, Tuesday morning. Great story to mention by the Daily Mail before we leave. Mo Farah. This is an update on the. If you remember the BBC Panorama documentary a few weeks back on Mo Farah's coach, which didn't it was very clear to not cast aspersions on Mo Farah. Uh, it said we have there is no evidence that Mo Farah has done anything wrong here. 
but the implications were quite clear that Farah is very closely associated with a guy who now seems to have his reputation in tatters as a coach. Farah himself, according to the Daily Mail, missed two drugs tests a year before the London 2012 Olympics. The second test seems to have been scheduled once Farah... So the first one was just before he started working with Salazar. The second one was after he'd started working with him, according to this. It should have taken place, the second test, at Farah's home in Teddington in London, but the athlete appealed to the UK anti-doping agency claiming that he did not hear his doorbell. Apparently his agent put together this uh, fancy video for the yeah. to send on as evidence that, look, when you're sitting in the bedroom there, listen to your music, whatever you, Mo Farah does to relax, it's kind of hard to hear the doorbell when the drug testers arrive. Feasible? Feasible excuse? Uh, I mean, it's a better excuse than... Well, actually, that tennis player that said that he kissed a girl... And that's how he failed his drugs test. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In some nightclub in, in Miami. This is a better excuse than that one. And I mean, that one, the tennis player actually got off on the on the basis of that, didn't he? So, I mean, there is, there, I mean, there, there, there have been worse excuses, but mm. I'm just, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know if the video is going to help him massively there either. You no, know? Well, well, it certainly didn't because the anti-doping agency got back to the agent and said, yeah, listen, it's just in all our interests yeah, to and also, uh, not fail another test because three failed tests. As Salazar has apparently said in an email to Farah on May 5th that year, if you miss another test, they will hang you. What I'm slightly surprised about is that uh, testers don't, maybe they do, I don't know. Testers, when they call to a door and somebody's not there, I would have thought that they then ring them up, they then text them, they then badger them a little bit and say, listen, we're, you, we are where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, come out here. And I know, you, you know you may find it difficult to hear your doorbell but we're literally, you see Farah putting the head down. This like, is your entire career here, so... Uh, it was one uh, It was one very striking element, I remember, of the Tyler Hamilton book when testers would call around to his door. He told, the, the at that level, at the Tyler Hamilton level of dr- drug taking, of cheating, your loved ones have to be, well, certainly your wife often has to be in on the know here mm. because she's going to see the odd voice. She's going to see some stuff and she's going to have to probably help you to... Uh, get away with things uh, at one stage the drug test is called to the door and it's literally like huh, head down and Ty- Tyler and the wife just both put the head down get underneath the couch and wait for the drug tester to go away which is uh, a little bit a uh, little bit of a grim existence alright but yeah. Uh, yeah, no that's the extent of the evidence against Mo Farah at the moment if you want to listen to David Gillick speaking about Farah that was the podcast we put out on June 4th if you just scroll back to that one he was had some interesting things to say there uh, it was after the I think it was the morning after the Panorama documentary had come out. That's it from us. Thanks very much for listening to this show. We'll have the football podcast later. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. We'll talk to you soon. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 